Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Our guest on today's podcast is Josh Goldberg. Josh is the CEO of the Boulder Crest Foundation. That's a nonprofit that's dedicated to helping first responders combat veterans, and their family members live great lives in the midst of struggle, stress, and trauma. Since being founded in 2013, Boulder Crest has trained more than 100,000 combat veterans, first responders, and their family members to transform struggle into strength and growth. Josh, I know that you also played a major role in developing the Warrior Path and Struggle Well Training Program. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on those models. I had the opportunity to attend a Struggle Well conference over the summer. I just had so much respect for the concepts that were being presented. I really believe in the effectiveness of the approach that was presented as far as transforming mental health struggle into personal growth. Um, Linda and I are both very excited to have you as a guest here today. We're looking forward to this conversation. Before we get into all that, if you could just take a moment and introduce yourself to our audience. Of course. So Josh Goldberg here, the CEO of Bouldercrest Foundation. I became CEO in uh, January, uh, but I've been involved working really as, as the right hand to Ken Falk, who's our chairman and founder. Ken's a retired Navy bomb disposal tech, and uh, his dad was a D.C. police officer back in the 60s. And so service runs in the blood. I uh, I tend to think of myself as the luckiest uh, civilian in the, in, in the world. Uh, because I get to spend every day of my life around members of the first responder and military communities. And, and they make me a better version of myself. They make me hold myself to the highest standards. And, and it's the greatest blessing of my life to, uh, you know, while I didn't serve in those capacities, I definitely consider myself serving now. And, and that service means we want to make sure that members of these communities, active uh, and, and retired and separated, all get the chance to live great lives. And, and that's really what this is about every day. And I get the chance to wake up every day and do whatever I can to you know, help make that possible. And I know that that's exactly what the two of you do. So really grateful to be on the show. Oh, thank you so much for, for being here and taking the time to you know, join us today and uh, share with us lots of information about Boulder Crest Foundation, the retreats, the warrior path. And uh, we're looking forward to really getting into the meat of the conversation today, Josh. Oh. How did you, if I can start off by kind of at the beginning, right? Uh, how did you get into this line of work? Were you always working in, in mental health or did you get your start elsewhere? Yeah, and I'm, uh, since our viewers can't, uh, the listeners can't see it, I'm smiling sort of broadly. It's, yes, yes. You know, I like to think about myself. I tell people I grew up kind of in, in my world as far away from the world of the folks I get to spend time with. As I can imagine, I tell people I grew up as an indoor Jewish kid in Dallas, Texas, and then people say, what's an indoor Jewish kid? And I'm like, it's a kid who doesn't hunt, camp, or fish. I don't know why people would sleep outside when you can sleep <laughs> in a bed. But, but fundamentally, like what drove my life was, was ease and comfort. And I probably listened to too much rap as a kid. And, and it really 
sort of caught this idea of like success in your life was about money, power, and respect, right? Achieving things, having status, having symbols. And uh, however it happened, you know, I got, kind of got down that road and, and I found myself in my early thirties uh, staring at my wife at the time and her asking me, is this what you want to do for your life? And I worked originally out of college. I worked at a big tobacco company doing social responsibility. And obviously I know that's ironic to most people. Uh, and then I went to work at ExxonMobil at a big oil company. And she sits and asks me this question, and I, I, I looked at her. I was like, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't put any thought into it. And I, I went, and I spent about six months reflecting, talking to a lot of people, and I came to the conclusion that the life I was living was just totally at odds with what was true for me. Mm. Um, wow. And just, you know, I, I was married. I never really wanted to be married. I, I enjoyed kind of wandering around the world. Um, and I just found myself in this Groundhog Day, Truman Show kind of living. And I knew that I had to make some changes, so I did. On the one hand, I felt very liberated. Uh, because I was going to start to, you know, anew, start my life anew. And then on the other side, I was very destabilized because everything I had attached my value to, I pushed away. And so I started to struggle a lot, panic attacks, couldn't sleep, um, and, and just really, really, really struggling to function. Went to a mental health person, and they gave me some medicine, but that really didn't help me because I felt just equally awkward on this medicine for anti-anxiety stuff. And uh, I worked for this guy named Mort Meyerson, and I don't know what he saw in me. He had lost his son uh, when his son was my age. And I was about two weeks out from ending my life. I just couldn't, like, I was just worn out. And uh, Mort handed me a copy of a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, Frankl is an Aust uh, Austrian who was a Holocaust survivor, lost his wife and his parents in the camps. And he wrote this book, and I read it, and it was the first thing that pierced the fog I was in. And so uh, I had a couple of thoughts after reading it. One was it wasn't my job to question my suffering. It was my, my job to figure out what to do with it. And the second was that, if I wanted to help myself, I should serve a cause greater than my own. And as life happens, you know, you kind of are open to something uh, and the universe or whatever it is provides. And, and a week later, I got asked to have lunch with the guys on the Cowboys and his, and his wife. And uh, his wife's brother had died in Afghanistan, actually, by suicide. It was a Marine. And I started to talk to them. They explained to me what they wanted to do to honor, honor her brother. And I was like, I'd love to help you. I don't know anything about this community. And they sent me a bunch of stuff to read. And I'm reading all this mental health stuff. And I'm like, you know, I've never been in the military. I've never been a first responder service, but I surely have been to the lands of struggle that these folks are describing. So I started to think about the universality of it. And, you know, as life happens, you know, I get asked to help. Oh, hey, I heard you help a veterans group. Can you help us? Can you help us? Can you help us? And it just was this, this amazing experience of really watching as this sort of new life was unfolding. Mm. And uh, everything was going well. I was helping people. I was feeling better. And I, I met this guy. I was just going to go observe a couple of days of a program. And he was a retired 82nd uh, airborne military police uh, officer. And he started asking me questions. And then at the end of it, by the way, he was interrogating me. I thought he was asking me questions. but just <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like, yeah. it's not, there's a threshold to cross to get into your world, right? There's a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of questioning, a lot of suspicion. And so at the end of this, he looks at me, he's like, you know, you can help a lot of my brothers and sisters. I think that's true. And, but before you do, you're going to do one thing for me. And I was like, what's that? And he looked at me and I, I think I'm okay to say this on this pod. Uh, he said, uh, you are going to unfuck yourself. And mm. when I heard that from him, I felt a lot of relief because I, I had made progress, but at the same time, I was still living in a mask. I was still kind of mm -hmm. using serving others as a mechanism to help myself. And so mm -hmm. what I took that as was a challenge is like, I, there's no shortcuts. I needed to, mm. to figure out myself and, and truly unfuck myself is the best terminology for that. And, and so I got the chance to do that over a number of months, really reflect on my life, the choices I'd made. And I really came to this conclusion. It was just sort of this epiphany moment that I had in my life when it was like, this is what you're supposed to do. This is why you're here. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to argue with that. 
And mm-hmm. soon after I met Ken Falk and Ken had opened Boulder Crest back in September of 2013, first privately funded wellness center in the country for combat veterans at their family at the time. And Ken had hosted a bunch of different groups. I had been involved in some groups. He came out. I was in California at the time and uh, we had dinner and I had laryngitis, which I'm really grateful I had laryngitis because I could talk for a while. And I just listened to him and I was like, this is a really, really remarkable human being and just incredible integrity, incredible vision. And then I met him about a month later, it's in December of 2013, and we talked and we both had the same view, which is it's really nice to help people when they're struggling. But when those people are reflective of systems that aren't working, if you don't fix the system, you're not really changing the game. You're not, you're not doing meaningful work. And so yeah. the kind of commitment we made at his dining room table was, you know, I say, I'll do this the rest of my life happily. I just want to make sure that what we're focused on is the root cause and not the symptom. Mm. And that's really what's what started this and, and kind of this, this crazy journey since. And you know, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary, it's like 100,000 people trained. And none of this was ever an aspiration. I mean, sitting with Julia Falk, Brad Wildercrest was Julia's idea. 21 years in the Navy, 14 years her husband's gone. Uh, one incident where she gets a call that he's dead and that he's never going to walk again. And she looked at me and she's just like, you know, when you're in it, you don't stop to think about it. But then you stop and you look and you're like, holy hell, mm. this is really something. And, and as I like to say, uh, we're just getting started because there's, there's a lot of work to do to, to get this right. And by the way, right, obviously we're focused today on first responders and the military community. Our mental health situation as a society, yeah. as a world is not good, right? Like we are the wealthiest yeah. in the history of the world, but we, we are hurting more than we've ever hurt. And it feels to me like for most people, traditional approaches don't work most of the time. Mm. And that's my own experience. It's my own bias. And so that's kind of the short, short-ish version of my story. Um, and, and like I said, I just wake up every day and want to make sure I'm worthy of this honorary seat I have in these brotherhoods and sisterhoods. And that's, that's you know, I don't, I don't say that from a place of insecurity, just like mm-hmm. that. I, I have a very precious opportunity to be part of something that most people aren't allowed into. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, avoiding the trap of, of treating symptoms and, and trying to discover what the root cause is and, and correcting the system. And that kind of brings me to a quote uh, that, I, that I read. I read that you said, Boulder Crest is transforming society's approach to mental health and PTSD. I, I, think, uh, I think that's a very lofty goal and, and, a, and a worthy endeavor. And from what I've seen, I, 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 I believe you. Um, and I'm wondering for our listeners, what, what is that? Like what, how is Boulder Crest approaching mental health and PTSD differently than traditional mental health models have? I'd say a couple of things. I think one of the unfortunate realities of the world we live in is that we've pathologized every form of struggle Mm -hmm. and, you know, they come out with new diagnoses all the time. There's another, another new one just came out recently, prolonged grief disorder, and we, we traffic in labels and diagnoses, and we fail to recognize that for a lot of people, those serve as a limiting factor on their life. That for a lot of people in, in your world, the, the diagnosis of PTSD is permanent, right? It's mm-hmm. final and it's fatal. And what it renders is it renders a good life no longer feasible. And then, you know, like in the veteran world, we pay you to basically sit on the couch and be miserable and be toxic and take medicine. Yeah. And I think the first thing to us is, Stripping away this desire to label and pathologize and diagnose um, is one major part of what we have to do differently. And I've encouraged my friends in the mental health world, because it's not that complicated, just do a study. 
right? Treat a hundred people and don't tell them what their diagnosis is and treat a hundred and do and see if there's a difference. Mm. Because my guess is there will be a difference. The second part that's really important is, and again, there are a lot of really good people in the mental health system. That's a thousand percent true. I work with some of them. And as a strategy, as a holistic approach to that system, that system is generally focused on helping people manage and mitigate the symptoms associated with challenge. It is not designed to help people grow. And mm. so to us, that's the second part of this is to provide language, a framework, and hope for the idea that because of everything you've been through, your life could actually be more meaningful and more purposeful. And I see it, right, in talking to the two of you guys, and it's exactly what you're doing, right? I was just at a conference in Vegas, and I see it time and time again. It doesn't mean you have to be grateful for the things that happen in your life. You just have to accept that it happened. And yeah. the question is, what, what am I supposed to do next with this? And so when I, and the third I'd say is, we take a training-based approach. Like when you look at the communities we serve, I mean, you're training people to do incredibly difficult things in are incredibly difficult situations. And, and the core belief of the, the world of first responders or the military is essentially you can train people to do anything. I mean, my boss is a bomb disposal technician, right? You're, you're disarming bombs and people are trying to shoot at you. It's some dangerous work. Yeah. But the best of the best, their heart rate slows when they're in front of a bomb because they're well-trained. And so to us, that's the third part of this is we're not trying to treat people. We're trying to train people and training means you're building people's capacity to do something. And, and that idea, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people don't go to traditional mental health, but when the DOD did research to understand it, the number one reason was people thought they could figure it out on their own, right? We have cultures where we teach people to be self-reliant, to figure stuff out, to be effective, to be competent. They don't know how to do something, <laughs> And they start to judge themselves. I'm inadequate. Yeah. I'm broken. I'm not capable. All of those things that kick in. And that's the other piece because, by the way, no matter what you've been through in your life, more stuff has come. That's yeah. just the reality. And so how do we equip people to navigate life's ups and downs in a healthy and constructive fashion, especially when you're in lines of work where you're exposed to lots of bad stuff and you're a human being, which means, you know, whether it's divorce, whether it's kids with severe dis developmental issues, whether it's parents with dementia, and these are some of the things we hear over and over again in our trainings. That's the part that for a cop, for example, is really hard to deal with is what do you do with a parent who has dementia? Like, how do you, how do you, you can't fix it, right? You can't control the scene. You can't make it better. You just have to live in this discomfort. And it's really hard for any human being to do that. But I think that's the third piece of this. And so, so trying to do away largely with these diagnoses and, and, and just to come back to that, Frank Okenberg, Frank is, one of the gentlemen who is responsible for the PTSD diagnosis ending up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in 1979-1980 timeframe. At the time, it was considered a great triumph because you had all these Vietnam veterans that were struggling. It was like, oh, my God, we've now kind of put a name to this. Frank called that the biggest professional regret of his life. And the reason for that is what he said is that he's learned that labels are very heavy for people to carry. Mm. And I think that's the part where the nuance of these worlds is it used to be suck it up, buttercup. And now it's, we're all going to get PTSD. And I think we have to just find a way to stop with like either or, and just have a balanced conversation mm -hmm. that these are challenging lives. And, and that's true for anyone, by the way, but challenging lives. And, and, and there is a choice. There's a choice of how that challenge affects you. And that's kind of at the heart of what we're, what, what, what we are doing, like what we're seeking to accomplish in terms of in this whole mission and effort. Mm, I love that. I love that you use the words like changing the speech of, you know, what words we choose to use when there's, you know, someone is struggling, right? And I think that, you know, where that comes from as far as 
trying to change it is like previous conditioning, like what people have grown into from previous ancestors, right, in their work environments or even just in their personal lives. Well, if you're not feeling good or you're having some mental health struggles or whatever it might be, whether it be panic attacks, I'm going to go to my GP and they're going to give me a di- diagnosis. And that's just the way it has been all along. Conditioning, right? So changing changing the speech of that and educating folks, well, that doesn't have to be. Let's let's use it in a more positive frame. If you're going to struggle, let's struggle well. Do you want to get into and that a little bit? I, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then I was just going to add one thing to that, Linda, is, is I think, you know, the medical model that's been applied from the mental health, from the physical health world to the mental health world hasn't been, like, we, we are better at diagnosing than we are at treating. And that's a huge issue when you have this kind of a delta. And I do think, yeah. like, language absolutely matters. It really, really matters. And when, when we talk to people about uh, in our programs and it's like, okay, raise your hand if you've heard of PTSD. And everyone raises their hand. I'm like, I don't know why we have PTSD awareness month. I've literally not met anybody who's not aware that PTSD is a thing. And then you say, raise your hand if you've heard of PTG and nobody knows. And mm. the problem with that, and when, when we kind of then educate them about PTG and they look at you and they say, why the blank has nobody ever told me this. Yes. And all I've ever been told is the ways in which I'm destined to become a victim of the worst experiences of my life. And yes. that is like, that's the part I'll never sat- be satisfied with, which is other people putting limits on somebody's life because what it saps people of is the single thing that human beings need which is hope, yes. right? We need hope. We also need to strip hope. And that's, that's the part I worry about is, and in the most recent research on post 9-11 veterans on the suicide uh, increase, which has gone up tenfold from 06 to 2020, one of the theories on the cause is diagnosis itself. And so, you know, the hope is to try to have that conversation in a thoughtful and nuanced way, understanding the role those diagnoses play but at the same time realizing that they have a significant negative effect on the people who carry them. And, you know, and that was my own experience as well. Mm, for sure. Absolutely. You're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You're thinking. <laughs> so I want to, I want to get in Josh and sort of get into that Boulder Crest foundation, right? Um, the retreats, right? You have a retreat in Virginia and you have also a retreat in Arizona. Can we get in and talk about that? Share with our listeners, like, what the retreats do, like, what do you do there? And sort of explain, if you can explain from the beginning, um, what that is like for someone who goes there. You know, our work throughout, I mentioned our our founders, Ken and Julia Falk, and and Mm -hmm. Navy Bond Special Tech, um, and Julia, again, you know, uh, being in the Navy as well, um, you know, by virtue of Ken being in it. And when, when the wars were kicking off in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and folks were getting severely wounded, Ken and Julia would go to the hospital and spend time with these primarily young, young men with their kids' age and their parents and their families. And so they had bought a place out in Bluemont, which is about 50 miles west of D.C. in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, it's a beautiful country, and just have them come out to their house for a little while just to feel like normal for a little bit of time and away yeah. from sort of the cramped, uh, you know, hotels and all the rest of it. And in 2010, 2011, 71 bomb disposal techs lost limbs. They had double, triple, quadruple amputees and other severe injuries. And Ken got home one night and, and Julia said, you know, it's really nice when we have people in our home, but when they're in your home, they won't put their feet up. They won't go to the fridge. She's like, we can do better than this. And so they decided to donate the flat part of their property. They call the pastures just 37 acres and some money to build this, this retreat center. And the initial vision of it 
was let's create a place where primarily enlisted families who don't necessarily have the money for it can go away and rest, reconnect, and recharge after hospital visits, after long deployments, really based on their own experience of like what it's like to be in the military. It's challenging. And as those families started to come, we would, you know, see them and they would say, thank you. And then, then usually it was a wife who'd pull you aside and say, Hey, this is amazing, but I need to ask for one more thing. And it's like, what's that? And she's like, you know, is there anything you can do to help my husband? So what's wrong with your husband? Well, the doctors say he has PTSD, but nothing seems to be working. And so that's where we started to dig in and try to understand, like, I'm like, I told you my background, I told you Ken's background. Yeah. We're not mental health people. It's like, okay, what's happening? So we started to ask a lot of questions about what was working, what wasn't working. And that led us to create Warrior Path, this first program based on post-traumatic growth. So fast forward 10 years, what happened? So, so we have Boulder Crest, Virginia and Boulder Crest, Arizona. Boulder Crest, uh, Virginia, 37 acre property, four cabins. Boulder Crest, Arizona has got three houses and then a bunk there. About half of the calendar year of both locations, um, we serve, we continue to serve families for rest and reconnection. That's always going to be an important part of our mission, important part of our DNA. In 2017, in the wake of the Vegas shooting, we began to serve first responders who did not have prior military. Uh, uh, that is focused or has been focused on our Warrior Path program. But we just launched a new program, which I'd like to talk about at some point, which is called the Struggle Well Experience, because we've really been overwhelmed by the amount of uh, assistance requested by the first responder community, and we want to kind of raise up to, to meet that standard. So half of the year at these places, families get to come for two to seven nights for free and really experience beautiful places and, and engage in different activities. Uh, and then in addition to that, we run programs for individuals. We run our Warrior Path program, which is a 90-day program where the first seven days is on the ground at one of our places. We've also built a partnership with the co-founders of the Home Depot, Arthur Blank and Bernie Marcus, who started something called the Avalon Action Alliance. So Warrior Path is now delivered by 13 teams across the country. So we've got partners in seven other states that have their own facilities uh, that are similarly doing this work. And then we run some programs for couples uh, as well as military kids. And so... Uh, on a, on a, an everyday basis, there you know we kind of say like you know every day is veteran and first responder day at Boulder Crest is there's amazing things happening there's healing there's reconnection uh, there's growth occurring at these beautiful places. Mm. In 2020, you know we've always had this thought right again I work for a bomb disposal technician so one of the things they talk about in bomb disposal is how do you get left of bang left of boot is you know if you wait for people to raise their hand and say I'm struggling in these communities you're going to lose a lot of people because people don't want to acknowledge they're struggling mm -hmm. so. In 2020, 2019, we really began talking about how do we bring these things to bear within the culture of first responders. And part of why we wanted to start with first responders is it's just infinitely easier than the military because in the military, there's a lot of people that have to say yes. And a first responder landscape, it's a chief, right? A chief says, I want to do this. And I started working with a guy down in Miami named Bernie Gonzalez. Bernie was a police, retired chief of police for training in Miami-Dade and was a SWAT team guy there. And then Bernie's brother, Mario, was a 28-year Miami-Dade firefighter and a peer chaplain and a peer support kind of guru. And uh, lo and behold, and again, there's a lot of this that's happened in my life, is you know we're trying to figure out how do we do this. The guy comes in who's the chief in South Miami who wants to have a wellness initiative as part of his presidency of the Miami-Dade County Chiefs of Police Association named Renee Landa. Landa and Bernie knew each other from the SWAT days when, when Landa was at City Miami. Mm. And... We started to do the work there. And so that's really been a powerful part of our journey is we have beautiful places and those are important and they have value, but they're not required to bring to bear all the things that we can bring to bear. And so we're able to bring it into the world. And that's, that's kind of where this hundred thousand numbers grown from is, well, and, and Jay, you mentioned seeing one, like if you just need a classroom and two instructors, you can really do a lot to change people's lives. But that's really what happens every day in Arizona, Virginia. And I'm really 
you know, proud of the way in which Ken and Julia's vision has inspired incredible people in a range of states, in, in Maine and South Carolina and Arkansas and Florida and uh, Texas, to build places that are like Bouldercrest that serve as, importantly, they're not monuments to service. They're, they're way stations, right? They're people who can go to enable themselves to be of continued service to themselves and the people they care about. Mm. Well, one of the things that I really liked about the program was, was that you, or the training was you walked away with having like actionable strategies to, to move forward and apply to your own life. And, and I, I believe in that approach. Um, I think I've said that a few times now, but I'm wondering, I don't know if you guys collect data, like what kind of results are you having? If, if you know, Mm. You know, one of the things that's really important to us and, and, and early on, you know, there's sort of this weird segmentation between like clinical and then non-clinical, but mm. like the non-clinical world was kind of characterized by, by stories, right? So it'd be a picture of a guy and a horse and it'd be like, this horse cured his PTSD. And it's like, and that may be true, but that's not serious, right? Like you can't go into a serious funder. You can't get a government grant with a picture and a story. And one of the sayings is that the plural of anecdote is not data. And so early on, going back to 2014, 2015, we understood that. And so we worked with Dr. Rich Tedeschi. Rich is the founder of uh, post-traumatic growth. I call him the godfather. And then Brett Moore. Brett was a twice-deployed Army psychologist. And we asked them to start to put together an evaluation so we could measure the, the longitudinal impact of our programming. And what was important is, you know, what's easy to do is you take eight, eight people, eight men and eight women, first responders, military, doesn't matter. You bring them to the Blue Ridge Mountains. You bring them to Snowed, Arizona. They're in a beautiful place. They get to spend time with each other. It's a peer-based program, so the instructors are peer-based. Everything is familiar and comfortable. Of course, they're going to feel better, right? That's just definitionally they're going to feel better. Yeah. But what happens a month later, two months later, six right. months later? When they go so home. So the initial challenge we yeah is, is the initial challenge was let's measure this for eighteen months. We felt like this is more than enough time to really assess and determine are we catch and release or not because that's what we wanted to avoid and what we saw was this incredible stickiness of our results, that what happened when they left stayed true for 18 months, in part because of what, Jay, what you just said, which is we're, we're not offering you sort of a magic uh, cure in a bottle. Mm -hmm. we're, we're teaching you how do you, with your own skills and capabilities and commitment, how do you, with some support, change your own life, right? That's yeah. really the goal. And so that, that was really important research, and we've continued to do that work. That's on the warrior path side. On the struggle well side, you know, one of the things I'm mindful of is in the trainings we do, and Jay, I can't speak to the one you went to, but there's plenty of people who get voluntold. So you get voluntold for struggle while training. Clearly, if you're a police officer in particular, you're like, okay, somebody thinks I'm acting like an asshole, right? That's just the immediate <laughs> conclusion someone's going to draw. So you got people who get assigned to training. And what I knew from the jump was like, if you go into that room and you have a bunch of symptoms questionnaires, like it's game over. People are going to shut down. It's not going to work. So yeah. what we focused on in those sessions was understanding post-traumatic growth. So doing a pre-post on the post-traumatic growth inventory, there's something called the Cantrell ladder, which really looks at how do people perceive their life today versus five years uh, and then training satisfaction. So we kept it really growth focused, but the biggest thing to me that's really powerful about struggle well, which is really designed to be done. And these are two day, five day training programs with ongoing support and education. These are designed to happen inside of cultures. So for example, the Tucson police department, well, the Tucson Police Department knows what are indicators that an officer is struggling, as an example, right? We know disorderly conduct arrests, right? Use of force, civilian complaints, property damage, sick days, speeding in their car. There's a whole range of actual behaviors that speak to is somebody engaging 
in risky, unsafe, yeah. unhelpful ways as it relates to serving their community. And that's really where I want to get to is, you know, when you look at mental health, it's people tell you things. And, you know, if you do a survey and you just had a fight with your spouse, you're going to have one set of results. If you just had an amazing weekend away, you're going to get a different set. It's very arbitrary. Yeah. So I really want to continue to work on, I want to know how do we look at what people are doing and start to segment that. And, and, and a good example, like a Tucson, is retention was a huge issue, right? Now, in the midst of George Floyd and civil unrest and, and all of the defund the police stuff, people didn't want to stay on the job anymore, right? If you were five or six years in, it's like, screw it, I'm going to go be a firefighter or whatever else it might be. We saw that. We saw these things happening. Or just go get a job. And so we've seen a massive increase in retention at Tucson and a solid, solid improvement from a low base on recruiting. And I think that's the other piece is my hope and aspiration. Because you look at the military, you look at first responders, they're all struggling to recruit. Mm -hmm. and certain extent to retain. And I think yeah. part of how you do that is you make sure that people are taken care of, they're valued, they're cared for, they're well. And if you can do those things, which is really culture, if you can do those things, people will stay on those jobs because they're incredibly noble pursuits, obviously. And I think that's a big part of it. So, so measurement is absolutely a big part of everything we do. And one of the interesting questions is, you know, how do you measure culture change? And the federal government does a does a study, which some of the agencies we work with are doing, that looks at like culture. You know, do people are they excited to go to work? Are they does work drain them, or does it invigorate them? And looking at some of those things is is an interesting challenge. But um, we've got a scientific advisory panel that's got some amazing, incredible human beings and psychologists who, you know, we talk to about this stuff. It's like, how do we really measure yeah. the impact of what we're doing? Um, and, and I think really start to shift the dynamics in these cultures. And, but it's ex like, you know, today, I don't want to name names, but like we had, we had a certain federal agency, they're putting two days of struggle well in every single academy, right? Which is like, think wow. about wow. You, know, you guys both came into the military, you guys came in like, that's the, and then what's really important is that they don't leave the academy. And then the, the, the old hands say, well, everything you learned at the academy was bullshit, right? Cause that's not helpful. So that's the cultural piece is you got to figure out like, what are the new folks experiencing, mm -hmm. which is a totally different generation. And then how do we support them and support the culture? And, and I just pick on Tucson as an example, because there's 30 hours in the Academy. There's, they go through a five day after they go through their probie period. You've got five days happening for every member of the staff. We've trained over 500 people. They're doing sessions for retirees, for family members. So you start to see, and, and in some respects, it's repairing, I think, the bonds and the community and the connection that used to exist in first responder world. And I think some of it's staffing, some of it's changes in protocols where people have take home cars. And again, I'm speaking more in law enforcement, but take home cars, you're not actually meaningfully engaging with your brothers and sisters. And so it's like, how do you rebuild that spirit? Because it's such an important part of what makes these professions special is the relationships. Yes, and I, think, I, I think it's, that's a big part of it. Absolutely. 100%. You know, when you think about, um, you know, the, the many interviews that we've had with first responders, Jay, um, especially in, in law enforcement. And, um, you know, one of the things was that um, stigma, right, of not being, um, not wanting their business being known, right? So they sort of stuff everything down that they're feeling, that they're going through, because they don't want it all over the over the police department that they're, they work in. And... Um, and they, they don't want to be talked about behind their back, right, of all that fear of being judged. So I, I love that you guys are doing that. And, yeah, the academies, you know, yeah, they are getting better from previous years of introducing, like, you know, mental health and, and awareness. But 
when they leave the academy and they go into their own then different departments, the boss or, you know, the, I, I'm, a, I'm a very simple talker. So for, you know, the boss or the higher up guy is there. If he's not in supportive of that, well, then they're screwed. You know what I mean? Uh, whatever I learned or whatever I, I picked up on and, and felt support in the academy, well, then that's all gone out the window. So I love uh, that. Yeah. yeah, it's all gone out the yeah, window. Yeah. And I'm just going to... Yeah. Sorry, Linda. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Well, and I, and I, think, I think one of the things that's been really interesting is, um, you know, these, these, these worlds are stressful, right? And then yeah. you have to assume, right? And then, and then sort of time is also like a factor, right? It's how long you've been in the service. And you think about these senior people in these professions, and it's a lot of stress to you. And so I think one of the things that we insist on as we do work with new groups is like we want a two-day executive leadership. We want to have this conversation with the leaders because we want to be partners yeah. but not operate at odds with that. And yes. one of the things you'll hear a lot, and, and I was really um, – uh, Chief Morales down in the city of Miami is a really, really interesting guy. And um, we did a two-day for them, and he sent out a message to the entire department, and he said, you know – we kind of say like we would do anything for you guys and take care of you guys. Um, but this is different. He said, you know, I went through this because I wanted to understand what we wanted to do for the whole department. But the truth is I needed this and the entire leadership team needed this. And I think that's a big part of, for me, like getting to spend some time with these men and women who are amazing people mm-hmm. is my God, they're caring a lot. And, um, and so making sure that the leaders can be well, which is and helping them build their emotional intelligence, understanding mental health is what facilitates their ability to see that there's not that much distance between them and a struggling officer, a yeah. struggling firefighter. And I think that's a really powerful piece. And again, you know, I could pick on a lot of people, but like Chad Kazmar in Tucson is just, he's an amazing, amazing guy. And, and you see this next generation of chiefs. They're not my dad's chiefs. They're not white haired, right? There's their sleeve tattooed guys and gals, and they, they have a different mentality. And I think that's one of the cool things you see is this generational turnover mm-hmm. is you get to see these, these leaders who are really, doing incredible work under great duress, right? It's just a difficult time with budgets and all the rest of it that's happening. And mm. um, so, so I look at it and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I was talking to a friend today. I'm very mindful of the challenges, but, but I am like so optimistic about the world we're going into. And I just think, again, it comes down to language, right? Like I, I, I hope at the risk of, of agitating people listening is I hope we're moving past the term resilience as a term that we use to try to convince people. And, and I, I say that because I think the term doesn't mean much anymore. We've seen it highly diluted in the military. Um, but I think a lot of people perceive that as get a bigger backpack to carry more shit. And that doesn't wow. work. It's especially in communities where people are predisposed. And I was telling you guys off air that we're, we're soon to lose a, a good friend of ours who's in, in Massachusetts, a guy named AJ LaPana. And AJ helped us initiate this struggle well work. And he talked about, it. he's like, resilience to me is just get a bigger rucksack. And that's not the message, right? The message is life alters us, right? Mm-hmm. Careers in these fields change you. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a great thing, right? Okay. They, can, they can make you and allow you to grow in really powerful ways. So yeah. I get fired up about this, so. Well, you can get fired up all you want on this, on this podcast, Josh. I, I, I have a question just to follow up on that, what you said about, um, like the leadership, do you think, um, I mean, you, you talked about it like down in Miami, right? You've been talking to these people in Miami and leadership and being open for to come in and do those struggle well um, trainings there. Do you think, and, and talking to the executives to say, hey, 
you need to get on board with this, right? Simply spoken. Um, do you think that the leaderships in departments um, are open for you guys to have that conversation? Or, or it, do you also recognize, is it more open in different states? You know? It's probably like, I don't know what the right term is, if it's selection bias or confirmation bias. I mean, you know, almost every day we get reached out to by somebody who wants to engage. And I think in some respects, you know, I, w- I would only argue that we're not necessarily working with the groups that aren't, uh, have those kinds of situations, if that makes sense to you. But I, I certainly think you could plot, like on a bell curve, you could plot that there's certain folks who are um, less interested in rather than more interested. But what I would say to you is, and, and this is, it's a weird thing to say it's a positive, but it's a positive part of recruitment and retention issues that it really forces these these organizations, the military, all first responder services, to look really hard at their culture and what they're doing. Yeah. Because what it's if they continue on the path they're on, they're not going to be able to get sufficient people to do this. I mean, take dispatch and communications as an example, right? Mm. It's we're not going to replace human beings with computers. I mean, we've all dealt with you know, stupid recordings where we're trying to get our flight changed. Yeah. Right. Imagine, you know, you're going through a trauma and you're trying to do that. It's not going to work. Yeah. So, but if we don't fundamentally change what it means to take care of people and to make people feel valued, I think we're going to end up with agencies where that's a competitive advantage. And I think I, I see a lot of leaders um, and, and even like talking to some of the folks who are involved in major city chiefs and some of these other places, but I don't see a geographic disparity to those things. Um, I think it's interesting to think about what causes people to want to focus on it. But I, I do certainly think that people challenges are the biggest issues that are happening in most of these organizations across the country. And, and so you see it. And, and, um, and, and it's just like any like early adopter, tipping point, critical mass kind of an approach is there'll be people who lead and people who follow. And yeah. from my perspective of trying to, to be successful, I think that works well to, to our advantage. Um, but you do see, like I said, there's an amazing breed of, of younger chiefs, especially on the police side, that these guys are they're just amazing. And, and, and their commitment isn't just to their agency. Like Chad in Tucson is committed to Southern Arizona and the whole state of Arizona and making Arizona the leader for what it means to take care of your people. And when these guys start, and they're very competitive people, when they start to compete for who's doing a better job at taking care of their people, mm. the world gets to a really, really good place. And then when they lean on, right, and they invite in their buddies from fire and dispatch and comms and other forms of public safety, I think all of a sudden you see like a renaissance on the in the offing. So mm. that's where I said, like, I get optimistic about it mm. because, you know, yeah, I've sat in rooms with people who just look at me and, and probably <laughs> want me to leave. But it just it feels like the exception. Yeah, that sounds like music to my ears, Josh, for sure. You know, that's one feeling like having that domino effect. Right. One department doing really, really well. And then they're talking to other buddies at town over and saying, what are you doing? And, and sort of feeding off each other um, what, what it goes. And I think there is you're, you're so true. There is that new generation of, you know, um, leaders um in in departments and i just had one yesterday look me right in the eye and say to me i vow to your family that we're going to look after our men and women in our department um in regards to the mental health right and and taking care of them and uh you know i felt that yesterday and it was a uh, i i don't want to say music but it felt good to hear and see him look me in the eye and say that um, because that's what we've been advocating for, uh, advocating for, right, is to, for departments to, to help them, right, 
to be um, resourceful and and not to be ridiculed and not to be penalized and not, you know get them help. Um, yeah, and, would, I, yeah. And, I, and I think the the two things I would say I think one of the challenges is, and you see it in the military is even where people have been progressive and committed we, we've done a lot of stuff that doesn't work very well. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's one of the challenges for people. Cause it's like, look, I'm not the expert in this area. I look at the experts and they tell, tell me to do this stuff. And then it's not making a meaningful impact. And you can imagine to achieve for a leader, it's like, look, I'm putting the resources, I'm doing the committing, I'm, I'm doing what I would do in any other area, which is I'm going to the people who are supposed to know. And this is when I talk to you that our approach isn't working very well yeah. is I think that's a big part of the challenge that they've found. And, and I really am grateful for the partnerships we've built with these folks is to help them understand like, Hey, look, this is how we see this. This is how we think this works. We, we design solutions specific to each culture. And then we partner with them to, to bring that to bear and make it happen. But it's sometimes it's not intent or willingness. It's they're doing things that aren't working. And I think yeah. the other piece is you, you just, I mean, if you just look at all of the crap, the training that came out, right. The de-escalation training, and we're going to train cops to be more empathetic and all these things is like, they haven't worked. And at the core of it to me is because, you know, and again, just using a police example, but like if officers aren't well, if they're stressed to the gill, there's no mechanism. They have no space to de-escalate, right? Yeah. They're going to go to a domestic. They just had a fight with their spouse. They're dealing with marital issues. Their level of compassion, but they just doesn't exist. Yeah. If they can't figure out how to metabolize that. Then, so it's an inside out strategy that I think works really well. And, and I saw it when I did my ride along with the firefighters up in Oregon and you, you just see the amount of patience and compassion required as we went into like, these houses filled with stuff everywhere. And and the grace that these men had, it really boggled my mind. But it also was like, if they're having a bad day, then a bunch of people are going to bear the brunt of that. And then they're going to have a bad relationship to the fire department and so on and so forth. So you just realize, you know, one of the things Kazmar talks about in Tucson is like the expectations on people in the first responder landscape have grown immensely over the last, pick whatever time, one year, five years, 10 years the training is not any longer. Mm. And so you really have this interesting challenge of we have to do a better job of training folks and consistently training them mm -hmm. and then breaking some of these taboos. Cause like you said, Linda, I mean, like I sit in a room and you know, somebody's going through a really awful divorce and issues with custody and they talk about it for the first time. And then they're like, gosh, I thought I was the only one. And I just look, I'm like, you thought you were the only person. Yeah. Come on, man. Like, and, and it's like, Nobody, nobody has all of this figured out. None of us, mm -hmm. right? We're all just kind of stumbling through, but we all feel like we're inadequate and we don't have it all sorted. And we have to portray this, this persona. And I think that's the biggest piece that I see in these rooms over and over again is people feeling like, like, oh shit, I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really got this all figured out. And in fact, the path to being well is actually talking about this. I mean, the truth will set you free. Right. And yeah. that's the part when I think the culture and that piece will change and it has to change and it doesn't diminish strength and capacity. It enhances. And I, I remember early on in all of this work on struggle. Well, I was like, okay, let's go, let's go test this with some, some knuckleheads. So I was like, I want a SWAT team. <laughs> and so we called around. We're like, all right, we're going to SWAT team from a department in Miami. And these guys were central casting, like strong as can be, like just, just central casting, just characters. Yeah. And this 28, 28 dudes. And um, at the end of it, as we were walking out, this guy looked at us and he said, you know, you found our weakness. We'll talk about anything for each other, with each other. We'll do anything for each other. But God forbid we talk about the stuff that we struggle with. God yeah. forbid. He's like, that's our weakness. And you, and you think about 
how much that impinges upon genuine human connection mm. and relationship for a guy to be able to be like, Hey, you know, I'm not doing okay today. And we don't have to fix their problems. It's just the acknowledgement that like, they don't have to carry them all by themselves Yeah, and, and that somebody cares. And I think that's the piece where when we talk about changing the culture, it's that's what democratizing mental health means. So we say we got to normalize struggle. Everyone goes through it. We got to democratize the ability for people to struggle well. And, and, and Linda, to your point, when you do have people who need more support, what we need is a lot of different options. And there are agencies that have great oh. internal options. They have great peer support. They have internal they clinicians. They have externally vetted clinicians. Our friends in Coral Springs in Florida, half of where Parkland and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas sits, right? They have an amazing program down there. They do co-pays for families as well as all city employees. They have a peer support team for actual city employees, not just fire and police, but city employees. And then you have external options, right? Like maybe they want to come to a Boulder Crest because they don't want to do it in the context of their agency. You just want people to feel like everywhere they turn, there's an option for them to get help in a way that's, that's attuned to what they want and need. And yeah. maybe it's peer-based, maybe it's not. That is, I think, what success looks like. Um, and, and, I, and I just, I see enough examples of that that it's like, okay, um, this is feasible. But I think that's the world that I want to live in, yeah. not a world where, you know, oh, hey, bud, you're struggling, call EAP. And like 15 years ago, EAP told the chief who went to EAP, you know, and there's no trust there. I mean, yeah. that, that is such a precious piece, that trust. Yes, absolutely. Totally, 100%. So, departments so i love that you're getting you know the struggle well um trainings out to departments all over the place and trying to get them in um you know police departments fire departments and and inviting first responders to those trainings can you get into that a little bit with us um more about that how do departments especially like in our area how do they find out about you how do they um initiate how do they get their their staff how do they get those first responders to those programs or do they come into the departments so when we think about when we launched our struggle well effort our goal was really to change the culture and, and my, my own personal mission and boulder Crest's mission is, is to change the world right from a world that's predicated on diagnosis dysfunction and disorder yeah. to a world that's based in notions of growth and possibility and when we think about bringing that to bear on a culture, for example, um, we think about having to do two things. One is to saturate the culture with a new way of thinking. And that would be through intensive trainings that are, that can be two days. It can be four days. It can be five days. A lot of when I say there's length differentials and Jay, obviously you come from the fire world is some of this is based on shifts. If you're a 4896 department, cool. We can do a two day. If you're a 2448. We haven't figured that shit out yet because it's just complicated. Mm -hmm. But city of Miami is a 410. So we do four day trainings. So you have to do enough training to get enough people to think about this, understand this stuff, start to practice this. And then the second thing you have to do is institutionalize it. So this is where when we talk about what are we doing throughout the training continuum to make sure that this outlasts any particular individual who may or may not be supportive within the agency. So what happens at the academy? What happens when they go through and become a detective or a sergeant and move up through the leadership ranks? What do we do for retirees? What do we do for family members? So we think about these two approaches. And one of the, the clear things, and we were talking to an agency today that's very large, is everyone's understaffed, essentially. And so one of the things we've really tried to focus on is how do you create a world where in our trainings are done with 25 people or so at a time? And so, you know, if you partner with a major agency, you may, like a Tucson, where they say, hey, these 25 people, we're taking every responsibility off of them for the week, go to your five day. But in a lot of places, it's unrealistic. So what you do is you regionalize the training and you say, okay, 
you know, Chesterfield in Virginia is going to be the hub and they're going to take half the seats, but surrounding agencies that would never be able to fill a 25 person class or have more than one person go can start to cycle their people through. And so that's the approach we've taken. Um, we do a lot of work in Massachusetts in particular. And I think if people are interested at all, what I'd say is you can just email us at strugglewell at bouldercrest.org um, and just let us know. You can come onto our website, just hit the contact us button, fill that out. That would be the best ways. And then essentially what we can do is start to have a conversation. Our focus right now is around 14 states. Massachusetts happens to be one, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, Oregon, Washington. It's, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge around the country based on where we are. And that's been the focus. But there are places where, for example, in Michigan, the state police came and said, we really like this. We want to see it. And the first thing we do is just say validate, right? Get on a plane. Most people don't mind going to Miami. So they get on a plane, they go get to drink some Cuban coffee and, and see what we're doing. And yeah. then in an instance like that, it's like, how do you build a train the trainer program that allows that agency, which is 4,000 people to support itself. And in addition to that, as we train up that agency to do this, how can they provide service to their surrounding agencies, sheriff departments, police departments that are small to do this. And so again, we're also doing that in Fresno, California. And that's the part that gets exciting is I always think about like, it's indirect and direct training, and it's departmental specific, and it's regionalized. The goal is show me your obstacles, and I'll knock them over, right? And like I said, in fire, it's interesting because I'm not going to run a two-day training and do one on mo- one day Monday, have people off Tuesday, Wednesday, and do a second day Thursday, right? That's a non-starter, and it requires you to get creative because certain agencies, this means overtime, means other things. like So it starts to create some challenges, but the goal for us has been – Let's have that conversation and see what makes sense. If you're a small agency and we can regionalize you and cluster other agencies, we can start to make this work. And then, of course, on the academy level, different states have different things going on, right? Tucson has their own academy, but they also service other parts of southern Arizona. So you inject it there. And now what happens is you have people going to other agencies who've been through this training, which is not at their agency. And then they're going to go back and say, hey, we should have this. And so that's been a big part of our focus is, to look at the, any challenges and obstacles and figure out what the right solution is. And, and, I, and that's the part I get excited about. We will probably train, you know, 500 agencies at this point. And as I tell our people, it's like, it's not McDonald's, right? It's not just number served, but there's value in trying to really spread what I would call. And I, and I love Monica Prieto is the deputy chief in Tucson. And she's like, this isn't a program. It's a movement. Yeah. And it's a movement to give people back power and control over their yeah. lives, over their well being, back to them. And that's the part that gets exciting. And then the last thing I say is, and we saw this recently uh, up in Springfield, Massachusetts, is the last day of the five day is, is really group presentations. And the idea is that one of the major questions that these groups are talking about is, you know, if it's true that we want a culture to be more aligned with notions of growth, what do we need to do as an agency or department or region to make that possible? And so what happens is we'll invite a senior leader from these agencies, for example, at Tucson, it'll be an assistant chief, to sit in the room and listen. And what you're doing is you're making everybody a shareholder in the culture. It's not just so you're trying to eradicate some of this us them mentality yeah. of well, the administration doesn't care. It's yeah. like, but that's not true, right? They do care. They used to work in those jobs. And I know sometimes people feel like they get distant, but they care. They also have a whole other set of stressors and challenges they're working towards with budgets and politicians and the rest of it. But it's how do you allow everybody to be part of saying, you know, these are the things we'd like to see. We want to be able to donate sick days to specific people, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be able to do this or that. And so you start to have a conversation where there's this constant feedback loop that is really, really powerful. And that's the part I get excited about is 
you're really enlisting everybody to say like you're either taking you're either making deposits in this culture or you're taking withdrawals and you got to make a decision but sort of the toxic everything is is terrible kind of cop at 12 14 years right who's just counting down the time to retirement that doesn't serve anybody it doesn't Mm -hmm. serve their family it doesn't serve them and and that's kind of my favorite question that that bernie who's the 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 dude from miami talks he always says he's like listen the only question you got to ask is is it working for you Mm. you know is it working for you is it working for your relationships and if it's not then jay to your point let's provide an alternative that allows somebody to reconnect to the person they really want to be yeah. and maybe they've lost sight of. And, and, and that's what we hear a lot from um, spouses is I'm, I'm so thank you for giving me my husband or my wife back. Mm. And when somebody says that to me, it really hits me in part because when, when I got through my struggle, my best friend, sister who's known me since I was a little kid said, you know, it's so good to have you back. And I, and so I know what they mean. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I, I want to add is, um, you know, clearly, so you do these trainings in classrooms, wherever they may take place. And then naturally, there'll be a couple of people in each of these rooms who need some more. And that's part of the conversation to have. And so from the standpoint of more at Boulder Crest, historically, for first responders without prior military, they applied to Warrior Path. We have seen, even though we've grown the number of Warrior Path seats a lot over the last five years, it's still more first responder demand than we can handle. And, and I just don't want to wow. be in that world. Also, for first responders, about 40% of them are actively on the job, which is a whole different issue around time. And so this year we piloted a five-day program that we call the Struggle Well Experience. Next year we'll launch it in earnest. And so if somebody's interested in that, you just go to our website, bouldercrest.org, find a program. It's a Struggle Well Experience for first responders. And that's something I'm really excited about because that's going to double the capacity of our entire network to serve first responders next year. And that's what I see as the kind of the future trajectories. There's just a lot of, you know, the trust issues that people have with agency provided resources are just true. They exist. And so making sure we have viable alternatives where people can get an immersive, like in residence experience, go away for a week. And those programs we will do in mobile locations across the country. Uh, our friend wow. and Jay knows uh, Rob Swartz. Rob is our Massachusetts state director. Um, Rob is the single largest referrer of warrior path participants. And he is now shifting his focus to struggle well experience. Um, and doing similar things in Massachusetts. So my guess is we'll be up in Massachusetts. We'll find a place to do a program. And, and again, it's important to say this is those programs are provided at no cost to participants. There's no health insurance being run. There's no paperwork. It's a training program. I, I know usually when I'm in person, I have to, I just, I kind of walk in a circle and tell people there's no string attached to me. Um, I know that's not common in the world of law enforcement or first responders, but good to us. And this is a really important thing to say is, you know, the two biggest stressors in some research I saw recently for law enforcement was the way the public perceives them and the way the media perceives them and portrays them. And, and I get it. I'd say stop watching cable news and, and stop looking at social media. Yeah. But the other thing I'd say is there are a lot of people in this country who deeply care about the fact that people who let them live good lives should also be allowed to live good lives. Yes. And, and I mentioned Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank. Gary Sinise Foundation is another donor. You know, Gary loves what he calls defenders. It's there are a lot of people in this country who, who love the men and women who serve on the front lines. Yeah. And that's what we get to see every day. And so because of them, we have programs and travels included, everything's included. And so if we can be helpful on, on the journey of anyone listening, just let us know. Um, that's the goal, right? That's the goal is to be helpful and to go into the culture and have these conversations. And, and, and I know I keep saying that. My, my nickname, by the way, is one more thing. Um, but one more thing, if I may, is 
when you look at the statistics around first responders, there's about 4.6 million first responders, at least what I saw latest in Google. And the estimate is that about a third of those men and women are struggling. And the truth is, whatever agency you go ask, no matter how prolific, how well regarded their psychological services and peer support teams are, they're never going to be connected to more than about 10% of those people. So you have places that a 2000 person agency where you have, let's say 600 people struggling and maybe, maybe, you know, a hundred of them are engaged in meaningful support. And so part of the logic of struggle well was train everybody. And that's what chief Landis said down in Miami. He's like, there's 6,000 officers across 37 agencies. I want them all trained. It's a multi-year undertaking, but the idea is you have no idea what's happening in somebody's life. Oh man. Right. And so that's a big piece of it is not trying to guess like, well, maybe we'll send this person. It's like, no, just send everybody. Same in Tucson. Send everybody, right? And send the records people and send the other, the, the PSAs and the other people who work in these cultures who also often are left to feel like second-class citizens. Um, because it is like to sit in a room with a dispatcher talking to a police officer, talking to someone who does CSI, talking to someone who does records, yeah. and to see some bonds becoming, you know, reconnected is a really, really powerful thing for all of those people to realize that they're not alone, they're valued, and they're supported. And I think that's the other piece when we think about the collective around public safety is, you know, in some respects, some of the BS rivalry stuff between fire and police and all the rest of it is one of the things Rob's been really amazed at in Massachusetts is just how how beautiful it is to see different members of public safety sitting in a room together and realizing how much they have in common. Yeah. And and it's a really good thing. Yeah. I, I'm. I, oh, my God. I mean, this is just... It's like a dream come true, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to follow up on that, um, Josh, like ongoing support, right? If someone participates in, like, say, a five-day program, right, uh, either at a retreat if they need continued support, what is the ongoing or follow-up support available to a first responder? Yeah. You know, for, for, for our in-residence program, so in-residence being these people are, you know, sleep away somewhere. Mm-hmm. So for Warrior Path and what will be the Struggle Well Experience, which will be formally launched next year, but you can apply now, is those will be 90-day programs. And so on the Warrior Path side, and again, we're still working through and figuring out and understanding the shifts and the rest of it, the Struggle Well Experience. But like Warrior Path as an example, there's the you get done one day, then a week later you do a call as a team, then two weeks, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And then we have our own app, an app called My Path for, for the Path side and Struggle Well for the Struggle Well side. And the idea is micro learning every single day, right? Five minutes of connection, of gratitude, of learning to, c- to continue to get your mind right and shape your perspective to sustain it. And that's been a real part of, of our success. On the struggle well side, on the agency side, what's interesting is it's almost something that has to be seated within the agency. And so, like right now, we're working on 140 what we call like micro lessons. The idea is you got a five minute roll call, you got a 10 minute session you could do is what's, what's a 10-minute unit that someone who's been through the training can do so that they can train their people and share this stuff and continue to keep it bombarded. Yeah. Um, now we're sending out kind of a regular weekly email and then trying to figure out the best distribution mechanism because with the cadets, for example, they all said, hey, like we want to share this with our spouses and our families. Right? We're starting this new life. We want to share it with others. And so you know, we're, we're constantly a learning organization, and part of that is like we're still figuring out exactly the right avenue like we're looking at learning management systems now because it's like what's the easiest and best way to make stuff accessible to people and to continue to beat this drum i'm always reminded right 80 percent of our thoughts on a daily basis are negative 80 percent definitely that's our default setting then you layer on difficult life events 
traffic, yeah. other stuff that happens. Yeah. It's easy to see why people in the diagnosis and labels, you get to negative places. Mm -hmm. So you really have to feed the other side of that, the 20%. And so that's part of what I think about. And the other part I think about is like, truthfully, we live in a culture where it's feeding the 80%. We know that's what social media does. We know that's what cable news does. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. It's designed to outrage you. It's designed to make you feel existential threats because you'll go back and get more. And so the challenge is how do you help make sure people are consistently imbibing quality and positive information into their minds and perspectives that allow them to do their job well. And so that's a big part of it. I mean, it's, it's fun to go out to, I was just at Tucson last week and Everywhere you go, they have these signs, and it says, what are you grateful for today? Right on the side of the academy, it yeah. says, struggle well, lead well. Right? It's, it's this constant reminder. They have, they have pins on their badges that they've been to the training that are the struggle well logo. So it's just this constant reminder in the culture that you got to take care of yourself and you got to take care of one another. So those are like there's a whole range of things to do on that side that we're continuing to work on. And then the warrior path and struggle well side is, you know, it's not a seven-day program. It's not a five-day program. This is a 90-day program, right? If you do these things, whatever you believe, you believe a habit takes 21 days, 65 days, whatever you believe, it ain't yeah. 90 days. It's, mm -hmm. it's less than 90. So it's like, okay, do this stuff on a consistent basis. You'll start to rewire your brain. Yep. You'll start to create new defaults, and you'll start to be able to have the life you want. And that, I think, is, uh, is a big part of when we talk about culture and how that plays out. Yeah, and I think that also, like within that ninety days, that if someone is, you know, constantly have that reminder through the app, through the support, and and everything else with it, they start feeling good, and and if they can feel good for that moment, well, then maybe they can feel good a little bit more as time goes on, yeah. right? Um, I have another one. Families, I mean, I hear support, right, and I hear, um, you know, continued support from. In, you know, the Boulder Crest Foundation and Struggle Well and the Warrior Path. And then there's, you know, support within departments. What about families, like um, spouses and families? Is there part of that that there's training for spouses, family support? Because they're also going through that struggle, yeah. you know, watching their first responder um, struggle not well. And um, and for them to be able to, is there training or observations or something for them to be able to be trained in that struggle well for families or support person? It's interesting. We, we did, um, you know, one of the things we had a vision of doing was twice yearly family trainings down in Florida. We did our first one and we're going to have a kind of a, a team meeting in early January and, and talk about this because, you know, I think, Accessing those communities can be challenging and difficult, but but it's really really important. As I remind people, you know, our organization was started by a, by a military spouse, right? That's yeah. who saw the need and made this happen. And so, yeah. um, I think you know, when I look at Tucson and and part of what they're doing is they're having retirees get trained up and train other retirees. They're looking to have family members get trained up to train other family members. So I think it's something that has to be addressed, and. I think the question is, is what is our role in that? What is the role of these agencies and organizations? I think is a big part of it. But there's, you know, there's no question to me, and this is the interesting part of trying to, um, as we always invariably say, paint the plane while it's flying, is like figure out really what I know for sure, because I've done a lot of it in, in the last 10 years, is I know that, that irrespective of what their spouse does, that these are human beings, right? These spouses, these families, they're human beings. I also know that they're either going to serve as shock absorbers or supporters right? Depending mm. on what they're dealing with when, when their loved one comes home. And mm. so what I know is the training works just as well. I think it's just figuring out the delivery mechanisms for doing that. 
Um, what we did down in Miami was really powerful, and I want to make sure we kind of continue to think about and focus on how do we do that. Some of that relates to partnering with organizations that are really focused on that. So that, that remains, and it's a great kind of do out for me as we think about how do we consistently fold in more and more people? Um, because, you know, one of the things that happened at that session, which was amazing, was two daughters who were, one was late 20, early 20s, one was probably a little bit younger, and they talked about how their dad had no idea how to be a girl dad. And, um, <laughs> and so what they talked about was, and, and one of the gentlemen had lost his wife and the, the girl had lost her mother. And they talked about refinding this bond and now getting to have a girl dad. And it was like one of the most, I mean, in these two girls to share their experience, to realize they too are not alone. Right. Yeah. And, and it's not, it's not that they're not lovable. It's not that their dad is, is broken. It's that there's this, this gap, this issue, this challenge. And I think that, that that was one of the, I don't think I'll ever forget that, to hear these two girls talk and to see them sit next to their fathers and to see just the softness that both of them had with each other and with their, with their fathers was a really special thing. And so I think that's, it just speaks to the challenge of these lifestyles. It's, it's ultimately far easier to just numb yourself, to just turn it off and not yeah. feel. And the problem with that, and it goes to, is it working for you, is what does that look like and how does that manifest at home? And it yeah. manifests as like immense disconnection and, and it manifests as, 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 as unloving, right? And it creates a whole series of challenges that, mm. that create multi-generations of behavior. And so that's mm. the challenge is if we can allow these men and women to maintain or refine their humanity, then what you give them the capacity to do is to bring that to bear in all facets of their life. Mm. And that, because that, that seems to be the cost of the job is your humanity. And from there, it just, it doesn't work. You know, the quote that, that I like a lot is death isn't the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside while still alive. Yeah. And that's this idea that we convince people this flame goes out. And how do you relight it in a sustainable fashion to be the person and the parent and the partner and the police officer, firefighter, whatever it might be that you want to be? How do you get back to that place? But yeah. it's not get back to it. How do you grow into the next version of yourself? Yeah, better version of yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. It's very interesting to sort of, um, you know, to think about, you know, the families and how, how they can be involved also. You know, they're the... It also, if families were trained in this or spouses were trained in this, um, you know, would struggle well. They would know, right, um, how to be able to support um, the first responder or the loved one when they come home um, and be able to understand it a bit more. And I think that they'd also benefit as a family a connection um, and being able to get through that together and struggle well together. Um, yeah. I think they're divorced. percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Divorce rate, you know. And I'm it, smiling. Yeah. yeah, definitely would go down. I'm smiling because, you know, we teach meditation in our programs, big believers in meditation, great way to connect your head and heart, metabolize mm-hmm. stress. And one of the euphemisms where it used to be in a relationship, it would be like, hey, you're acting like such an asshole. Instead, it becomes, hey, did you meditate today? Yeah. So it's the same idea, but it's a constructive thing. But better yet, it's like, hey, why don't we go meditate, right? And this is yeah. the point is like, how do you, because one of the challenges, and you see it a lot in the veteran world, is, is the veteran tends to get the lion's share of support and their spouse doesn't. But their spouse and their family are meaningfully affected, right? This stuff yeah. is contagious. Yeah. So the question is, is, so they're struggling, the whole family's struggling, and now the veteran goes away and gets help but the family is still where they were before. And now this person's growing, but the rest of the family's resentful because it's like, hey, 
we're jacked up because we've had to live with this. And now like, it's like we're invisible. Yes. And I think that creates a whole set of challenges. And so figuring out how to address that in a meaningful fashion is, is a really, really important part of this challenge. Because like I said, it's not just that there's somebody's spouse or child or family member. They're also human beings and they also have their own struggles in addition to all the stuff they're dealing with. Cause that's the other part that I don't, I don't like is what I call plus one programming, right? Yeah. Is Julia is not Ken's wife. Julia is Julia. Right. Mm. And so seeing her as a complete person and as a person who's deserving of this, because, and, and it's one of my favorite parts about military families is like, we're in the army, we're in the Navy, but you don't always hear that in first responder land, but there's something really beautiful about the acknowledgement that the whole family is in, invested in this. And, yes. and whether they like it or not, they're a part of it. And yeah. I think the same is 100% true in these in these households. Yes, absolutely. Oh, look forward to all of that coming to fruition um, in the future, Josh. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Keep adding to my to-do to, to list, Linda. Yes. I, I, I'm I, smiling I, as I say that. I, well, I, I say it, I'll do it the rest of my life. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you know what? I don't think our, our work is ever done, right? Because we have new desires and new goals and new growth and, and we have more research and more data coming in. So it's constantly growing. We want to always continue to learn. Um, I know I never stop wanting to learn, so um, I'm never done either. You want to chime in? Yeah, the, Josh, the, the optimism um, that, that you have around this, this conversation is absolutely inspiring, <laughs> yes. sir. And... Um, it's you know the way that you talk from from a point of being solution oriented uh in ways that i, I really believe will work um is like it, it's getting me excited over here listening to you um, we talked a lot about the culture and and how to um kind of create an awareness of post-traumatic growth and in ways to approach healing uh, and have those kind of take shape as cultural norms, which I think is so important. And the ways that you're talking about doing it uh, seem to be very smart to me, uh, impacting the culture, calling the chiefs and administrators in and getting them to understand. Because I agree with you, like the majority of uh, authorities having jurisdiction are well-intended. And if you give them a resource that's, that's going to work and take care of their people. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is, when we talk about peer support and uh, you know clinicians that work in the in the with military veterans or within the first uh, responder community, um, is there a way like these people gravitate towards treatment modalities that work? Right, if they hear that that they're having a lot of uh, you know their fellow clinicians are having success with EMDR or you know whatever's working, they go out and they get trained up. Uh, is there a way for clinicians to get certified in, in PTG, or is that something that, that you've thought about? Yeah, and it's a great question and uh, feels like a great leading question. So one of the things, so so Dr. Rich Tedeschi, Rich is, the, as I mentioned earlier, is the founder of PTG. Uh, and Rich runs something called the Boulderfest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth, which is kind of that arm of our organization. And then Brett Moore, who I mentioned is the deputy director, and Taryn Green, Taryn was an Air Force veteran and a psychologist in PTG, uh, is our director of research. And so I expect that in the, like, the end of the first quarter, early second quarter, they're going to launch a formal PTG certification program. And what's important to say about this is, you know, PTG is an idea, right? Warrior Path, Struggle Well, those are applications of that idea. Those are programs. Those are modalities, as I would call them. Okay. Uh, but PTG is an idea, the idea that you can grow after trauma. So what I'm excited about on the certification front, we're going to have two sides of that. We're going to have a side for 
sort of traditional sort of clinical mental health professionals, people who are licensed, and then we're going to have a, a, a certification for people who do things like peer support or other kinds of services who are who are kind of helpers or servants to others, but not necessarily in a licensed way. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that they can bring to bear these ideas of PTG in ways that are organic to whatever it is they do. So if they do EMDR or they do equine or they do peer support, is they'll have this sense, this understanding, this context, this perspective they can bring to bear in those engagements. Okay. And so that's part of what we hope is as we increase people's awareness of post-traumatic growth is that we then increase the number of people who when they come to their website or they find out about them, they have the seal that says that they are PTG trained, yeah. that I'm here to not, I'm not here to help you feel less bad. I'm here to help you grow. And so I'm super excited about, I mean, Dr. Tedeschi uh, and Dr. Moore, they've trained a lot of people over the years, but this is really something more concerted as an effort uh, that I'm super excited about. I know they're really excited about it as well. Um, Cause that's really the next frontier is, you know, you have the communities we serve, primarily the military veteran first responder communities, and then you have the people who serve them, right? So it's like, how do you effectively, we don't need to be everything to all people, mm-hmm. right? There's lots of people doing really good stuff is, but if we can sort of upskill everyone's understanding about how to meaningfully inject relationship and hope into these rooms, yeah. uh, wherever those rooms may be, I think we get to a really good place. Wow. Me too. I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. And I love that, you know, you're, you're again, you're getting that sort of like training the trainer, right? That type of thing. That's what you were talking about. Like training the trainer, the trainers are going to be training lots of different trainers that can take it into their professions like equine and, and all of that type of stuff. And I love that. Um, I'm very excited for that to come out and to be exploring all that and sharing it all over the place and getting lots of people involved. And we're excited about that. And, and like I said, and then I think when you step back and you look at, you know, we live in a world of, of struggle. And so, you know, we're also doing some pilot programs down in Florida with some schools um, and, and teenagers and, and juniors and seniors. And so I think that's when I say to people, I would do this the rest of my life is I think it really is. There's, there's not groups in our society who aren't affected by, I think by struggle, but also by the way that our mainstream society addresses that. So there's just, there's an immense amount, when I say immense amount of work to do, I'd say it with a smile because I, I love what we get the opportunity to do and, and how we get to support and help people. And and for us, you know, when I think about this at the end of the day, is there are a small group of people in our society who serve on the front lines. And they we call them essential, but we treat them like they're disposable. And we've mm. got to do better at making sure that the men and women who do those jobs are able to do them in a healthy and constructive fashion. That's what it ultimately boils down to. And, and if and when they get to a place where they struggle, then there's options for them that allow them to continue to do what they want to do. Because what can't be is you can't make people choose between work they love and their well-being. And we all know stories of people who've had to do that, right? Either retire early or not even retire, just leave, or sort of suffer through because they're vested and they can't leave. And so I think there's a lot to be done, but that journey is a really joyous and meaningful journey. And it's a, you know, a wonderful thing to uh, the number of, of people who I meet who hadn't laughed in five, 10 years, right. Who, who mm. turned over every photo of uh. themselves smiling because they couldn't bear the sight that they were once happy. Mm. And <laughs> that to me is what success looks like, right? It's not, it's not suicide prevention. It's a life that is worth living. That is what we are striving for when we say we want people to live great lives. And that's yeah. a life that's filled with joy and purpose and connection and service. And, um, and that's kind of what it's all about to me. And so that's, that's my favorite part of, of this world is, you know, getting to see people regain a sense of joy for life. Um, 
and their love of what they do and realizing that they can, they can keep doing it for a long time. Wow. So it's amazing. What you guys do is amazing. I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed and uh, I'm excited to, uh, to get to keep kind of doing that and then spread yeah. the word for sure. And, and like yeah. I said, you go to bouldercrest.org and you can hit us up and we're happy to support and help. Absolutely. Thank, Josh, we're so grateful that you, you know, we got to have you on here tonight. Um, I think that, oh, there's just so much information that our listeners are going to really, really value um, when they hear you speak and, and share all the information about Boulder Crest, Struggle Well, Warrior Path, and all the other information that you just shared with us tonight. I can't wait. I'm very excited for to get this to get this podcast out. Uh, likewise. Yeah. Josh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for all the good work you do, man. It was yeah. great meeting you. Thank, thank you. Thank hey, you for what you do. Excellent. I appreciate you guys. Josh Goldberg joined us for a great conversation about the Boulder Crest Foundation, how it started in the beginning, to what it's grown into in 10 years. It started off with hosting veteran and then first responder families to a five or seven day retreat-like vacation at the Boulder Crest in either Virginia or Arizona. These retreat-like vacations led to the Warrior Path program and now the Struggle Well experience for first responders. I had the privilege to personally attend a Struggle Well seminar where I gained a better understanding of how to maintain resiliency during mentally or emotionally challenging times. Linda and I both read the Struggle Well book. It helped broaden our understanding of how first responders and others can thrive in the aftermath of trauma. From what Josh shared with Linda and I, there's so much more to come from the Boulder Crest Foundation. With new data and research about mental health and first response, they are constantly learning and developing. We're privileged to have resources available to us in our own state of Massachusetts, offering the Struggle Well experience for first responders. If you are a first responder and you're listening now, this might be something that can help you. Till next time. Till next time.